0: All right, welcome and happy New Year to all! And can't wait to kick off 2022 on a high note. Uh, what better way to get everyone prepared for the upcoming tax season than to have a tax expert come and answer everyone's questions? <laughs> um, I'm joined today with Nicole. She is a in a enrolled agent, and I can't wait to learn more about it. Nicole, can you give a brief intro of yourself?
1: Absolutely. I'm so excited to be here, Brian. Uh, like you said, my name is Nicole and I am an enrolled agent. Being enrolled agent means that I have passed three super hard proctored exams. They are not open books, so no cheating. I've also passed a background check and what the IRS refers to as a suitability check. And then they've issued me an enrolled agent credential. What that allows me to do is it allows me to represent taxpayers in front of the IRS. And it's actually the enrolled agent credential is seen at that state level as well. So if there's a state level requirement to have some sort of extra class, for example, in California, in order to do taxes, you have to have what's called a CTEC. But my enrolled agent credential actually trumps that. I've been doing this for 17 years. So I've been in taxation a really long time.
0: What made you want to get into taxes? Because for me, whenever I hear taxes, and I feel like a lot of people too, they just think of headache.
1: Well, it's so funny that you asked that. Um, I have a really kind of weird, I tell you—it was kind of a weird origin story. So when I was younger, 21, 22-ish, my own personal taxes started to get really complicated. And every time I tax form, because I've been working since I was 15, receiving W-2s as an oh, wow. employee somewhere. Yeah. And so I just always took my tax form to the family CPA. And when I say family CPA, she did my taxes. She did my parents' taxes. She did my grandparents' taxes on both sides. So we're talking, she had three generations going there. And I didn't understand what I was reading. And I I didn't understand how to fill out my forms when I got a job. I just like, I don't get this. And so I went to her and I said, you know, I bought a house. We've got a rental property. I'm doing some contracting work. Things are getting complicated around here. What do I need to track? What do you need when tax time comes? And uh, she told me, Nicole, nobody is really going to care about your tax situation as much as you do. So if you really want to maximize every single dollar, you either need to come see me every month so we can do tax planning, or you need to learn the publications and at the very least, learn the basics. At the very least, learn the basics. And I was like, let's do that. And so she gave me my reading assignment, and I went and did it and i fell in love. I mean it's i just fell in love with what i was learning and i just I fell in love with taxes.
0: That's a good way to really get into the weeds of everything because i i kind of wish that i did that but on a smaller scale of when i when of when i was younger because taxes to me are still daunting and i wish i kind of learned everything from a younger from a younger age just to understand it more as an adult cuz as you grow older your taxes Will become more complicated with more investments and jobs, owning a house, rental properties, and all of that. You mentioned CPA and one thing that I'm really curious on what's what's the difference between a in a enrolled agent and a CPA?
1: The first major difference between an enrolled agent and a CPA is a CPA is a state-level designation or credential. They're actually one of the only people that can call themselves certified because it stands for Certified Public Accountant. And a CPA credential, or some people call it a license, and I don't know the CPA rules, so I don't know if they're allowed to call themselves licensed, but uh, it's issued at the state level. So what happens is to become a CPA, you have to get a four-year degree you have to have a bachelor's degree. And then in most states, so every state's rules are a little different, but in most states, you have to also take 150 hours above a bachelor's degree in taxation. And and then once that's done, You can set for a four-part test, so CPA exam is four parts, and there's also usually a work requirement. So before your final CPA gets issued to you, you usually have to work a certain number of hours under an already licensed CPA, and they have to sign off on it, almost like job shadowing or mentoring. And then once all those requirements are met, you can become a CPA.
0: You said that CPA is like the... state level of it. So I'm guessing the enrolled agent is like the federal level. Yep. So
1: an EA credential is issued by the IRS. It is, I think the test is probably every bit as hard as the CPA, but the biggest difference is as an enrolled agent, I focus exclusively on taxation. So I want to save people money when it comes to taxes. Whereas a CPA does all aspects of accounting. So when I say they have a four part test, one test is on audit techniques. One is on accounting—the the right way and the wrong way to do accounting, credits and debits. Uh, one test is about taxes, and I don't remember the four. What the I think the fourth test is about reg. It's called reg. It stands for regulations. Whereas my enrolled agent exam is three tests, and all three tests focus on taxes. So the first test is about individuals. The second test is about businesses. And the third test is all about record keeping and ethical requirements of being an enrolled agent.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Have you had any desire to go to from like, if you also get a CPA, or do you mostly just enjoy the taxing part of it?
1: There's so much to learn in the world of accounting and taxation that one person can't be an expert <laughs> in all pieces, to be honest. And I really, <laughs> really like taxes. Like, I joke all the time with people, I'm like, I'm a huge tax nerd like i just am i'm just i'm a huge major tax nerd when the new bills come to congress and co- congress is like we want to change the tax laws and things start showing up there um such as you know the bills that pass for the stimulus payments i'm a huge tax nerd i don't want to do the day-to-day accounting i don't mm-hmm. i that's just not i can do bookkeeping there's nothing wrong with that but i The skill set that a CPA does and an EA are different unless that CPA specializes in tax. And so I'm like, if I'm going to specialize in tax, why don't I get a designation? That's all it does is taxes. Taxes and tax representation.
0: So speaking of the new of when the stimuluses came out, on the tax side of things, Did that shake up a lot of like tax forms, the way taxes are kind of done? Or was it just like one minor little change?
1: So we had three economic impact payments come out or three stimulus payments coming out. So each one of those bills had tax changes in it. Some were minor changes and some were pretty major changes. So no, I would say over the last two years with all the various COVID-related provisions that have happened there's probably been a conservative estimate, 50 to 80 tax law changes. And you have to remember a lot of those stimulus bills or economic impact payment bills, they were passed in the middle of tax season. So sometimes they were retroactive, sometimes they were moving forward. So no, it it definitely has made for the last two years being super interesting. And then on top of that, the IRS actually closed for about 12 weeks. So in March of 2020, the IRS completely shut down, closed down all of their service centers. I mean, they weren't answering the phone unless you knew specific phone numbers to call. Basically, if you knew somebody specifically at the IRS, they were not opening the mail. They were not processing tax returns. Everything at the IRS during tax season in uh, 2020 came to a screeching halt. And it didn't move again for about 12 weeks. And then it was almost another eight or so weeks after that before everything kind of started moving. Because some departments didn't even open at the end of 12 weeks.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yeah, they're still not caught up, by the way. So they, the IRS was having to rent extra office space. They were having to rent tractor trailers. And mail was just being, like, shoved in these storage places to try and keep people's personal information safe they are still not caught up so right now the irs still has the process we're not talking like late filed returns or amendments these are returns that were timely filed there's some 19 out there and there's some 20 uh, that still are not fully processed and the advanced child tax credit and the stimulus payments it's made it even more complicated
0: for the delays and stuff like I remember that happening, but I can't remember what really caused it. Was it just like short staff and because of COVID or was it like an internal reason for it?
1: It was because of COVID because as a whole, Uh, that was when COVID really kicked off and schools shut down and businesses closed and our economy just kind of went in the toilet if i can say yeah. that <laughs> they just kind of went in the toilet like overnight because every, everything just shut down that's when the mask mandate started and and i don't care which side of the debate people are on but that's when those we started seeing you have to wear a mask you have to social distance we don't have a vaccine you know that's when that stuff started was right around march um of 2020. And the IRS actually did a press release about it, but everything shut down. A levy, I mean, they quit levying people who had back taxes. The downside of that is I had a client. So it's kind of funny story, well, not funny, but sad in a way. <laughs> but, uh, so I had a client who he does a lot of work through staffing agencies. So he may work for somebody one month and not work for them for like six months. And so he hadn't worked for this particular staffing agency for a while. And he went back and did some work for them in February of 2020. And then he got paid in March of 2020. Well, unbeknownst to him, the IRS had issued an order for that particular agency to garnish his wages six months prior. But that garnishment order had just been sitting dormant because he hadn't earned any income from the staffing agency. And so, right about the time he got paid in March was right about the time the IRS was closing down. Luckily, he reached out to us, and like I said, we we could we couldn't call like a normal 800 number and get people on the phone, but there was really limited resources to get some of the revenue agents and revenue officers on the phone as long as we could direct contact them. Uh, And so we did that, and they were supposed to do a blanket release to all levies because that was the other piece they said is because of COVID we're releasing all levies and we're putting them on hold but here's what got are missed.
0: levies exactly
1: so a levy is where let's say you Brian let's say you don't file your taxes and then finally you get caught up and you owe the IRS ten thousand dollars I'm not saying any of this is true you're just Ouch. my example <laughs> <laughs> so let's say you owe ten thousand and they are sends you a whole bunch of letters. Let's say they send you a letter once a month for six months and you just round file all of them. For those that don't know, you throw them in the trash. And <laughs> they get tired of waiting. And so they're like, fine. And so they do a search at the IRS and they find what's called a levy source. And a levy source can be uh, income, so it can be a W-2 job. It can be social security benefits. Um, usually they don't touch unemployment, but they can. Or it could be if you're a small business owner, they can actually levy your accounts receivable. That's a longer process. Or it could be your bank account. So what happens is the IRS sends a notice directly to the bank or let's say your employer, and they say, Ryan owes us money. We want you to send us 85% of his check until we tell you to stop. He can apply for an exception. Here's the paperwork. That goes directly to your HR or your payroll department at your job. Usually two to three days before you're getting ready to pay it again, HR or payroll comes out and goes, hey, Brian, we got this for you in the mail. And they give you a copy of the levy. Usually by that time, you're going to lose that first paycheck. There's usually not enough time to move fast enough to get it stopped. They can do the same thing with your bank account. The way it works, they send a letter directly to your bank. Let's say you have $10,000 in your savings account. That $10,000 is now gone. except. If your bank account gets levied by the IRS, you have a 21 day window. So what happens is the bank freezes that money. It leaves your account so it looks like it's gone. But It's really not, it's just kind of hiding. The IRS doesn't get their hands on it for 21 days. So you have 21 days to negotiate something with the IRS to either get a partial release on that money at the bank or a full release on the money at the bank
0: that sounds like it would take a lot of time
1: uh usually from the time somebody calls me if they have kind of all their stuff together and they've got a copy of the letter I can usually get a partial release or a full release in about 48 hours 48 business hours it's important to note that the IRS has to be open because I have to call (laughs) them on the phone
0: so do you have like personal connection at the IRS that you call for this or do you just call it like the standard like customer support line or the public the uh public support line or something The
1: answer is it's a little bit of both. So the way it works is because I'm an enrolled agent, I do have a secret line. It's called the practitioner <laughs> <laughs> I do. It's it's like that I tell people like the red phone or the bat phone. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> within the industry we call it the, we call it PPS or practitioner priority service. And it's actually more like the fast pass at Disney is what it's actually more like. And so what happens is when I call that number, I'm usually connected with a decision maker at the IRS within about 20 to 45 minutes. I have to have the appropriate paperwork for my client. So if I'm gonna actually represent you in front of the IRS, I have to have an IRS specific power of attorney. Uh, for those who may be wondering, it's called a Form 2848 if you're the researching type. What happens, is, <laughs> what happens is I give my client's information to the agent, and then I fax in the power of attorney, and then I also have to give my own information. So not only am I giving this agent my client's name, my client's uh, social security number, their address, but I also have to give my full name my enrolled agent number, and I have a secondary number called a CAS number, and then I also have to verify my identity by providing my social security number. And depending on the agent, usually could be two to three more pieces of information. So there's lots of verification before they'll even open an account and talk to me. And then it's really all about understanding and knowing the rules. So the IRS has rules they have to follow. The rules that are out there can actually be accessed by the public. Um, There's two pieces. There's the IRC, which stands for Internal Revenue Code. Look at it like it's just a set of laws is what it boils down to. And the IRM, which is the Internal Revenue Manual. So the code is the laws the IRS has to follow. And the manual are the steps that the IRS agents or people you speak to at the IRS have to take to follow the IRC. So you have to have a good argument um, and combine those two to represent your client.
0: That's pretty cool.
1: <laughs> so I don't call the normal. I think the normal number is 800-829-1040. Don't quote me on that. But, <laughs> you know, because I don't know it. I never call it. Um, but that's the n- number for taxpayers to call. And let me give you a little heads up And the way the IRS works. is getting ready to be tax season. I mean, it's January, right? It's time to start. The ta- the IRS hires seasonal workers just like a lot of tax places do and those seasonal workers go to six to eight weeks of training. And when you call that plain taxpayer 800 number, that's who you're getting on the phone. Some You may be their the first phone call.
0: Yeah. That's rough. Yeah, it absolutely is.
1: So it's always important when you call the IRS that you make a note of what you talked about who you talk to, making sure to get their ID number because most people at the IRS don't use their real name. So they'll be like, hi, this is Mr. Smith calling. <laughs> Mr. Smith may or may not be his real his real name. You need that number. So that IRS agent ID number, it's usually nine to 12 numbers long and they rattle it off really fast. Get them to repeat it at the beginning of the call.
0: Wow. That's and write nice, it down. <laughs> that's sneaky of them. Yeah, Yeah, these are very good tips. Like I would have never known to like do this because, like, I kind of I kind of picture it like Amazon customer support, and they kind of give like fake names, but then you disconnect, and then you say, "Oh, Alice said that you would give me this type of discount," and they were just like, "We don't have an Alice here." So. That's how. That's how I got the picture. Right that's there. why those
1: ID numbers are important. Cause you're right. They don't use their real names, but that ID number tracks back. And anytime anybody at the IRS accesses your file, in theory, they're supposed to notate it. Oh, client called in, said blah blah blah, but like you said, the calls drop sometimes. Sometimes the calls dropping are intentional. Sometimes they're not. And a lot of the IRS is still working at home, to be really honest. And this isn't, like, I'm not picking on the IRS at all. I mean, they were put in an impossible situation. An agency that doesn't have a lot of home workers, they didn't have a lot of laptops set up that were secure. They're dealing with people's most sensitive tax information I mean, they yeah. were—they really were an impossible situation. And a lot of the agents are still – a lot of the people that answer the phone um, are still at home. And I work with people at the IRS all the time that are at home, and I don't have a problem with it.
0: I kind of want to do – because you mentioned that you did training for, like, businesses, individuals, tax returns. Yep. Which one of those are the most – like, well, first, which one of those do you enjoy the most doing? And which one's kind of like the messiest to do? I'm guessing the business, but.
1: Yeah, definitely knows? the business. I mean, people have some really complicated lives. So my personal favorite on tax returns. So if somebody's like, what is your perfect return to do your ideal client? my The returns that I absolutely love to see come in the door and I love to do are my individual filers, so my people that file on a 1040 that have some sort of small business or small farm attached. So think, let me give you some examples like uh, Uber drivers or Instacart delivery people, or you know, if you do the MLM side, Mary Kay, Pampered Chef, that sort of thing. Those are my favorite ones to do. The reason being is Because they're self-employed, it opens up a whole world of tax advising and tax planning. So it gives us a few more options on the tax return aspect of it that you may not have if you're just if you're if you go to work and get a W2 at the end of the year. Sometimes it's just Mm -hmm. the way it is. But those small business people, because I can I've seen where I've been able to save people ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars on their taxes because they've come to me early and we've done tax planning. Sometimes we need to switch the way their business is organized. So they need to go from like a single member LLC to an S corporation, or they need to go from a sole proprietorship to an S corporation. Those are my absolute favorite ones to do. Um, just because the tax planning aspect, I, can, I have such a big impact on people's lives. The yeah. ones that I hate that are kinda, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be messy, is big huge corporations. So I always joke with Oof. people and I say if Amazon called me tomorrow and offered me a billion dollars to do their tax return, I would turn it down. That because...
0: sounds like a headache.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just was... just
0: hearing of it. <laughs> it's
1: just not it's it, there's I don't want to say there's too many moving pieces but
0: that that's is what not... I was thinking.
1: Yeah, but that's not that's the tax law I've studied. That's not what I love. I love helping Individuals, and yes, I know there's still an individual you know behind Amazon, but you've got international to think about it's, it's just not it's just not my my bread and butter it's just not what I love,
0: yeah, that's kind of like the next thing that I wanted to bring up too, because like in this modern age with like with with covid happening in the past two years or so, a lot of people have been switching over to being their own boss, so making their own business out of their home, and I kind of wondered like like how are taxes for like small business owners who either start an online business, start an Etsy or start anything out of their home. And you kind of hit the nail on the head with this one, but what are what would be some tips that you would give them for like just to prepare themselves for tax season coming up because tax services can be kind of hefty, so like you said if people bring you like the correct info it can save you a lot of time and i'm guessing it can save them a lot of time on services absolutely if, you, if they don't have to spend a, like a lot of time searching and gathering stuff
1: so my two i have two major trips trips <laughs> tricks let's try that again <laughs> two major tricks for anybody who started a business or is self-employed uh the first thing is to ask your current advisor or go to the IRS and get what's called a Schedule C. So your business, when you're a sole proprietor, is reported as part of your personal return, and Schedule C is that driving form. And kind of familiarize yourself with it, because there's some categories on that. That's my first tax trick tip that I want to tell people. The second one is Don't do all your bookkeeping at the end of the year. I'm not saying you have to do it every day. I'm not saying you have to hire a bookkeeper, but don't wait until December 31st at 1159 and try and do 12 months of bookkeeping because our memory is a funny thing and you're going to lose receipts. You're going to forget why you spent that money. It's just, it's going to be hard. And find an advisor that you can talk with year round. And I don't mean go see them every month and pay them their consulting fee for an hour of their time. I mean, you know, in June or July, send them an email. Hey, my business is at 20000 My expenses are at ten. Anything we need to do. Most decent advisors can ask you two or three questions and get you going on the right track. But don't wait until, like I said, December 31st at 1159 and try and <laughs> cram all of that in. And there's two reasons for that. My first reason is there's just not enough time to make any tax moves. So if there's something you should have done once that clock strikes midnight, it's rare that you you can't go back in time. There's only one or two things you can do after the fact. That would save you tax money. That's the first reason. My second reason is, to be really honest, a lot of tax advisors take the week off between Christmas and New Year's because it's our last time to have time with our family and be away from the hustle and bustle of tax season before we hit the grind of things. And the last two years, tax season's been extended.
0: Yeah, you're right, actually. Now that I kind of think about it, yeah. Yeah, I think those are really good tips. Like, And that kind of brings me up to another topic is you say bookkeeping like don't like don't keep don't wait until the end of the year to do your bookkeeping i know that there's a lot of robo advisors out there like i i think i see commercials for like uh the intuit workbook mm-hmm. or something it's just, mm-hmm. well, so like softwares that automate it for you how reliable are those and i kind of wanted to get your views on robo tax returns like turbo tax um and other tax uh tax return soft uh softwares out there
1: yeah sure so there's a couple things to we ha- let's unpack that question cuz there's a lot there's a lot there, in there yeah, there's, there's a lot, lot in there <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay there's i i'm used to unpacking i'm used to unpacking complicated situations so let's talk about the bookkeeping side of things first Um, your bookkeeping can be as simple as an Excel spreadsheet. So here's how I recommend everybody, every single person sets up their bookkeeping. Number one, get a separate bank account. Guys, I'm telling you, it does not have to be a business account. So you don't have to go to your bank and be like, I need to open a business account because they're probably going to charge you. Just open up another personal account and just tag it business account. It doesn't have to say fancy business account checking. It can be a personal checking account. <laughs> Just separate it from your everyday transactions. You should have a this is my opinion of course, but you should have a checking account, a savings account, and if you believe in using credit cards, then you should take one of your credit cards and say this is anytime I need to charge anything, all my business charges are going to go on this credit card because it makes that in that bookkeeping easier. It can be as simple as setting up an Excel spreadsheet and downloading all of your transactions from that checking account for a year and then labeling each one. Oh, I went to Office Depot and I spent $50. Okay, of this $50, I bought stamps and I bought ink. That goes under postage and office supplies. It can be that simple at the end of the year. Or you can, like you said, Intuit. Intuit offers a bookkeeping, uh, QuickBooks Online, and it comes with an app. It's like, uh, $15 a month subscription don't I'm not sure but I think it's $15 a month subscription but it has an app so you can access it from your uh, smartphone from your tablet from your computer and then you can do your bookkeeping yourself like you said you can program it so you can tell it to pull your bank feed in so it automatically goes and pulls the information from that checking account into QuickBooks Online and then you can teach it so every time I go spend money at Office Depot I want you to call it office supplies and tell it that or every time I go eat at Red Robin I want you to do meals and entertainment so you can teach it to do those categories automatically the artificial intelligence or the robo accounting type stuff is only as good as the way it is set up so it's it's just software. It's it's an if then. So it, it says if it says this, do this. I mean, it's that simple. One of the good things about QuickBooks Online is Intuit does offer a a bookkeeping service. You can upgrade it a little bit, and you can have somebody like me that contracts. Cause honestly, all the, almost all the people that work for Intuit, they just contract. their are they're employees, but they just do it kind of part time to fill in. Um, And then they they help people, or you can hire an accountant that does bookkeeping, and you can give them access to your QuickBooks Online, so you can set up accountant access, and then they log in through their own login. So that's confusing. Let me break it down. Let's say, Brian, I do your bookkeeping, and you have a QuickBooks Online subscription. You would not give me your QuickBooks Online login information. As an accountant, I have my own subscription, which is free to me as an accountant. And you just give me access, so you invite me into your QuickBooks online file, and then I can use my login and go in, I guess, the back door, through the back door and access your company to help you classify expenses. But it doesn't have to be hard. So some of my favorite apps out there, um, Excel. For small businesses just starting up, I'm going to be honest, get a separate bank account and just download them to Excel. It's one of my favorite ways to do it. For smaller businesses, at some point, you outgrow the simplicity of that. Um, And so some of the other options are, we've talked about QuickBooks Online. There's uh, Wave Accounting. There's FreshBooks. uh, There's Xero, which is spelled X-E-R-O, not Z-E-R-O. There's another one called Bench Accounting, although I've got to admit, from some other people in the industry, they're saying that they're not too impressed with kind of the way it's going. So it's going through some growing pains right now. Definitely a good company that they're going through some growing pains. And then your other question was DIY tax software. So the DIY, the TurboTax, the TaxAct, uh, tax layers of the world, where you log in and do your taxes yourself. What I tell everybody about the software is they spend all year with their getting everything up to date and making sure they're following all the rules. So it's gonna be really rare that there's a calculation error inside the software. Sometimes it happens, especially on the state level. But the big thing to remember about the do-it-yourself or the DIY software is if you don't understand the tax laws, you may not be answering the questions 100% correctly. Cause it's really easy to be like oh yeah that's a deduction and you can put it in the software as a deduction and it may not be and there's no one double checking those returns to make sure everything you input is truly a deduction before it goes to the irs so the only time not understanding the tax laws kind of becomes a problem is if the irs audits you i
0: know during tax season i was scrolling through tiktok one day and there's I got a few TikTok saying that like robo advisors like TurboTax are not really the greatest softwares because it's really basic. It so is w- it, one it is you basic. may not be getting all of the savings that you that you deserve, mm-hmm. and a lot of it like you have to pay extra for to get like Support. extra features of it. Yeah, yep. so there's like um if you trade stocks, I think you gotta pay extra to do the stocks part of it, and I was wondering like would it just be cheaper and better to just go to someone in person and
1: i don't know if it'd be cheaper um because i spend a lot of money with all of my knowledge <laughs> so i don't know if it'd be cheaper but i definitely think it would be better you know and I, TurboTax is a good software, but it's like you said, it's basic. If you don't know, if you don't really know what you're supposed to input and where it should go, it's really easy to mess yourself out of deductions. For example, let me give you an, a real life example, rental property. A lot of people don't realize that when you have a rental property, you should depreciate that every year. And not only should you depreciate it every year, you're actually required to. Because what happens is when you sell that rental property and the depreciation gets what's called recaptured, the way it's set up is allowed or allowable. So if you were allowed to take depreciation and you didn't, to be very blunt, you just screwed yourself out of a deduction. And oh that I, I actually see that mistake a lot. So when people come to me and they've used a do do-it-yourself software for many years, depreciation is actually a pretty large deduction that they miss because the software asks, do you want to depreciate this? And people are like, well, no, I don't really know what that means. And so they do it. Uh, you know, they don't do it and then find out later it's missing. The other aspect is when you call and get support, you're probably going to talk to a different person each time. It's just whoever the call gets routed to. Um, they're experts, so let's, let's just talk about TurboTax for just a minute. I'm going to give you a little behind-the-scenes look and hope I don't get my hand snapped by them because they, they email me all the time about stuff. But So mm-hmm. let's just give you a little behind-the-curtain scene. So if you call TurboTax and you're like, I want to speak to one of their expert advisors, and they send you to either an enrolled agent, a CPA, or a tax attorney, especially during tax season, you're talking to somebody like me. For example, I get an email every week at least from TurboTax that they're like come and work for us. Work whenever you want. So they will literally hire me to advise their clients on the do-it-yourself software and be like, "Oh, you need to you have a rental property, you need to make sure you take your depreciation. Here, let me walk you through how to enter that." They will hire me to do that for their customers, and they're okay with me still having my own customers because they need such a large number of people to give that expert opinions or expert knowledge out to their clients that they're like work whenever you want. Here's what they want. They want you to have be credentialed. So you have to be an EA, a CPA or what's called a tax attorney and you have to commit to 20 hours a week.
0: 20 hours a week. Eh, not horrible, I would say.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's not and it's like a, it's a it's a decent job. It's really good for like people just starting out that want to earn some extra income or maybe people that are wanting to retire and they're tired of chasing their own clients because they have a built-in client base and we're not signing the returns as a paid preparer. So it also takes some of the, uh-oh, off of our back as yeah. well. <laughs> so Because I can actually be, as a professional, uh, I can actually be fined by the IRS and I can, yes. my records can be audited. Now, if they, audit my records they're not auditing me for what's on your return they're making sure i have all of my stuff in order because there's certain things i have to ask for before i can prepare somebody's client somebody's return
0: yeah definitely like in the future i would want to do some rentals but now i know in the future to always depreciation
1: say, that's your number one
0: Take depreciation, Everybody gets it. <laughs> depreciation and, and property an tax person for it
1: yeah depreciation and property tax those are the two two big ones if, if you have a rental i can almost guarantee you you either you have depreciation unless you've owned it for 50 years but you have depreciation you have property tax
0: there's one last thing that i wanted to get into and this might still be some tricky water i'm not really sure i haven't been following this as much but cryptocurrency laws i know that cryptocurrency has been a big boom in in the past in in the past year and i keep reading that there's not much clear guidelines on how
1: <laughs> no. how these
0: are taxed so i don't know if like you're caught up or if oh yeah i'm even, probably caught
1: up <laughs> or
0: like if they even gave you anything because it's really messy water for like a lot of people because i feel like a lot of people jumped onto the crypto bandwagon and they're making all of this money but some of them are questionable on how these are going to be taxed
1: Yep, it is absolutely. So it's muddy waters for sure. Definitely some murky stuff going on. But here's what it, here's what cryptocurrency at its basic level is. Cryptocurrency is treated like buying stock. So, you know, for years you can trade money, you know, Forex trading, where you sell dollars and you buy Japan Yen and they're paired up and depending on which way they move. So, so trading money is not a new thing. It's, if you trade regular currency, it's called Forex, F-O-R-E-X. And there's hmm. exchanges you can just do that on. But cryptocurrency is a little new because it's a blend between stocks and currency. Because, you know, it's not currency you can spend. And so the mm-hmm. easiest way to explain it to people is treat it like you would treat a stock. I actually own some cryptocurrency um, myself, to be, uh, to be honest. Um, right now they're dropping like a weed, though. I'm losing my... Anyways, that's another story <laughs> for another day.
0: <laughs> um,
1: so what happens is, let's say that you buy one coin. Any coin you want, you buy one coin. And you pay $10 for that one coin. That coin is now that ten dollars is now your basis so think of it like a stock your one coin is one stock of whatever currency and you paid ten dollars so that's your basis and you hold it for a little bit you hold it for a little bit and you're like okay i don't want this coin anymore i want some u.s dollars and so you sell it and when you sell it and you get your u.s dollars out of it you get 15 U.S. dollars. So to make this really, really basic, you mm. bought it for ten, you sold it for five, you have a, f- and depending on how long you owned it, so let's say you owned it three months, so you've owned it three months and you made five dollars. That would be considered a short term capital gain of five dollars. Okay. the problem you run into is because cryptocurrency isn't well regulated we're a little spoiled when it comes to stocks and bonds <laughs> and so at the end of the year wherever you have an account you're going to get this statement that says oh you bought abc shares and you paid this amount on this day and you sold this and it gives you this beautiful printout that's like tax prep ready and you just stick it in the program yeah cryptocurrency doesn't do that when you get a cryptocurrency report you get every single transaction so what happens is um, I recommend first in first out for cryptocurrency so the first ones you buy when you sell you sell those first ones that's what I recommend you have to then match everything so it's like balancing your checkbook, and that's where the problem with cryptocurrency comes in It's because there is no regulation with wallets and with this and with that and everybody's in the crypto I mean cash app Robinhood PayPal. And so a lot of times it's the same money going in and out. And so if you get this report and you look at it and they're like, what do you mean I made a million dollars? Well, (laughs) not really. If you really look at it, a million dollars may have passed through your wallet because of all the going in and out, running back and forth. But you really probably only made a gain of, let's say, a thousand dollars. And obviously all these numbers are totally made up. But that's where accounting really comes into play. Because when you get the report, it's every transaction. And it's not in this pretty ready to go transaction ready to go report for somebody like me. So I have to do some bookkeeping on that.
0: Yeah. I was yeah, that made me think of like the NFT era of things. Mm -hmm. So people can buy Bitcoin or Ethereum on Coinbase. They transfer it out to a different service. They buy a NFT buy it at like $100, sell it for $10,000. And then they transfer that $10,000 of Bitcoin back to their Coinbase wallet as $10,000 and they withdraw. That's kind of where I get confused and how they would get taxed on that because they only saw like, let's say $10 of Bitcoin get bought on that platform. And then all of a sudden, $10,000 of Bitcoin come in.
1: Yep. So the easiest way to do that is get is i do it in excel so there's some there's some software out there where you can upload your report and it'll create it'll create a tax ready document for you but i just i follow the money so i get an excel out and i follow the money okay so i deposited ten dollars right
0: mm-hmm.
1: so i gave them ten dollars in u.s u.s dollars and it went into coinbase am i following Okay, how, when it goes into Coinbase, how much Bitcoin do I have? It doesn't really matter, but how much Bitcoin do I have?
0: Let's say for simple purposes, point
1: 0.1. Okay, point 0.1. And then you give them that point, you give somebody the point 0.1 for an NFT, right? Mm-hmm. NFT. And they pay you in $10,000 worth of Bitcoin, right?
0: Let's just Let's just say for simple purposes, that's one. That's one. Uh, one.
1: Bitcoin. One coin? Works yep. for me. So you have to look at the difference. You put in $10, you're going to take out 10000 The amount of Bitcoin doesn't really matter. It's just like the amount of stock you buy doesn't really matter. It's your basis. Your basis is $10 and you made 10000 so your profit is, you're gonna give me a hard number to say off the top of my head, $9,990. So your capital gains would be $9,990 because that's the profit you made. Now, let's say that they pay you $10,000 in Bitcoin, which is one coin, but you leave that coin in there. And let's say it drops because Bitcoin has dropped like a lot lately. And let's mm. say that when you get ready to turn it into dollars, it's no longer worth the $10,000, and it's only worth $5,000. That changes it. So now you've bought it for ten, dollars but you've only accessed $5,000. So now your profit is $4,990. So that would be what your capital gains are calculated on.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So it, doesn't, yeah.
1: it doesn't really matter how much Bitcoin you own. It matters how that converts to dollars.
0: Okay, yeah, that's that's what I thought originally when it came down to taxes. And then, well, okay, so that makes sense now. Of like, and then long-term capital gains would be based on like how long. Yep. You have a cost basis. Yep. So how
1: long? So if it's a year and one day, it's long-term. If it's less than a year, it's short term.
0: And then there's also one thing with crypto. Is like I like I really haven't been following it much, but like they claim Ethereum as a security. What's kind of that debate of like a like a stock versus a security, or or that whole little debacle of it? Like, do securities get um get taxed differently or something
1: so it's not taxed differently it's still capital gains whether they call it a stockish or a security the only reason they're referring to a security is because they're wanting cryptocurrency to become mainstream so the people who've kind of invented it are are dreaming and i don't mean dreaming in a negative way either but what they're pushing towards is that someday instead of using american dollars or canadian dollars or whatever it may be dollars to buy something that you don't have to convert it to dollars before you can buy stuff that you can just be like oh i need one bitcoin to buy that car and then you give them one bitcoin to buy it the the issue is the way it fluctuates but to be very honest The dollar fluctuates too i mean a dollar is always a dollar here in the us but it's not always a dollar if you go to another country so so cryptocurrency is very much like trading currencies on forex it's the same basic principle the biggest thing to remember is that bitcoin is tied to mining and they say the chains get harder and so it's some that has a finite amount But for some of the other coins out there, such as Deutsche and stuff, it's just like, this is how much I've given to the world, and there's not a finite amount. They can just give more and dilute what it's worth. Um, And there's not really, so far, the SEC is still trying to figure out how they're going to control it from their end. Because stocks are controlled by the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, to make sure that the Amazons, the Microsoft, the Teslas, the the people that are being traded on the stock exchange are playing by the rules. So far, the cryptocurrencies, even though you can buy them in a lot of popular trading platforms, aren't really being regulated the same way. It's the laws are not catching up quick enough to the technology that we've created.
0: Gotcha, yeah, yeah, I feel like What would your estimation be of when we would have solid regulation, if any, of cryptocurrencies?
1: I know that they're pushing towards it. Based on the
0: process or based on the progress that we've had so far.
1: I know that they're pushing towards it because the last... I know for sure in 2020, and I want to say in 2019, there's a question on your tax return that actually says, do you own any virtual currency? So I know 100% for sure on the 2020 return that there was... I think also, I'm not sure, but I think on 2019 that that same question was there. And so what that is doing is that's giving them that's kind of like a polling question. This is a good way to remember it. Is it's the IRS saying, okay, how many people out in the U.S. own this currency? Because right now they don't, nobody has to report it. So the wallets and stuff don't report any taxes. They don't report to the IRS like your mutual fund account would so they have to figure out what, who has the money not necessarily individually but what companies have the money and they have to pass the rules backwards to to regulate them to make them say okay we need to know how much you owe mm-hmm. so we're probably looking i think we're at least 5 years away from having solid and solid uh bills passed and then having those bills passed so that they can be converted to law because you have to remember tax laws are not created by the irs they're created by congress congress creates the tax law and then the law passes and then whoever the president is at the time can sign it or veto it once it's signed into law then the irs has to read that bill that just became a law and then they have to interpret it and then they have to pass the internal revenue code
0: Oof, that sounds like a headache.
1: So think about how long it takes to get anything through Congress. I mean, that's why yeah. I'm like probably at least five years before anything solid comes out.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And having major platforms like Coinbase and Robinhood being publicly traded on the on the stock market does that have an effect of like like heavy like some type of like is that really big regulation since they're public they're public publicly traded.
1: Yes. So when you're a publicly traded company like Robinhood, or when you can go out and buy shares of a company out there, they have, and I am not, this this is where I'm not an expert. So these are the companies that I try to stay away from, but I know just enough to kind of be dangerous as an investor. So they have to have audited financials, and that is one thing that a CPA can do that I cannot do. And so what happens is they bring a team in, and they go through every line of every profit and loss, and they audit it. And they're, they're trying to find where every single penny and making sure everything matches. And then they have to sign off on it. It's called an attestation. So CPAs can provide attestations, and they can provide audited financials. I cannot, but I'm not, I'm not really an accountant. I mean, I am an accountant because it's a general term, but I don't do accounting work. I do bookkeeping. There's a minor difference. And so these large companies that are publicly traded, they have to have audited financials and then they have to submit timely reports to the SEC. I don't know how often that is. And then they also have to support report. They submit reports to whatever exchange they're traded on. So if they're traded on the major stock exchange, the NASDAQ, then they have to turn around and submit reports to NASDAQ. So there's a lot of eyeballs. And that's where you'll see the SEC will be like, we're doing an investigation. You know, the last year they've investigated uh, Elon Musk for his tweets. Um, You know, they've tried to kind of get him in trouble there because Tesla is publicly traded. And then, oh, there was a financial advisor and his name is escaping me. That was pretty popular on Reddit, on Wall Street Bets, and was really involved in the whole AMC GameStop thing about this time last year, to be honest. And he actually got got his hand swatted pretty hard by the SEC. Oh, I wish I could think of his name. <laughs> um, he could provide financial advice, uh, trading advice to people. I believe he lost his ability to do that over oh, that whole wow. because he was such a heavy poster in reddit that they found that he um he basically went over his fiduciary responsibility and so i believe they took away his ability to to give advice investing advice to people i'd have to double check uh... that if i could remember his name it'd be super helpful (laughs) all all i can all i can remember is the wall street all the wall street bets guy
0: (laughs) yeah dang that's crazy yeah wild times in the past in the past year with like AMC, GameStop, all of that Dogecoin and the cryptos like it's a wild time. Yep there's
1: been a lot of millionaires made and broken over the last year.
0: That kind of brings us to like the end of to to the end of the show. I wish we could talk more about this but with time purposes like oh it's sad but (laughs) I could talk about taxes all day so there's a lot of questions that I have with tax because like, it's, it's such an area that people don't like to talk about until it's actually tax season. And by that time, it's already hard enough to get someone out of the phone yep. for it, or it can be very hefty. But yep. I thank you so much for coming on. Nicole, where can my listeners find you?
1: So you can find me online. Uh, The firm that I work for is 100% virtual. We're 100% remote. So location doesn't matter to me or you. Um, And my website is boundlessadvisors.com. And we have a smartphone app. We have a secure portal. Even emails go through. I encourage everybody, anybody who becomes a client or thinks they want to become a client, just set up an account totally free. doesn't cost you anything. That way, everything you send me now is behind a secure portal. So it's a multi-layer process of keeping people's information secure.
0: That's good. That's good. Any social media, any podcasting for you? Or
1: Hi, you know, I don't do my own podcast because I hate the editing aspect of it. I'll be, I'll be <laughs> guests for anybody all day long. But yeah, you can find me on Facebook. Um, we did a little bit of a rebranding. So we went from Boundless Tax to Boundless Advisor. So my Facebook is still under Boundless Tax. You can find me on Twitter, Boundless Tax. I'm being told I need to have YouTube and so that's in the works, but I don't have it yet. That
0: would be so helpful. <laughs> someone just explained taxes in like two to three minute videos of like, this is what this, this is what this form is for. This is what you should do. And, on a small business thing that that would be so helpful to so many people including i'm
1: working on it but again it comes down to editing and i found somebody i really like so she and i are going through a little bit trial right now to see if her editing style is going to match anything so i just i want to launch it with lots of content you know i don't want to have one thing and then nothing and so i want to have five to ten videos ready to go before i launch it
0: Awesome, awesome. Yes, when when it's up and running, send it over. I'll post it everywhere. I'm, I'm sure people would love to love and appreciate that. But I thank you so much for coming on. I've learned a lot with taxes and cryptocurrency taxes, anything taxes. I've got all of my and all of my questions answered on to this podcast. And I hope the listeners out there that are listening to this today, you learn a good amount of things and some and some tips to prepare you for the upcoming tech season
1: yeah it's here it's time okay one more tip to sign off anybody who's self-employed because it's the beginning of january if you want to take your mileage deduction either write down your odometer reading or snap a picture and send it to your tax advisor because that beginning and the ending odometer reading makes your bookkeeping super easy when it comes to mileage just
0: a little trick very nice very nice. Love it. Once <laughs> Thank again, you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much for coming on.